Hello, I'm Andy Parker, and welcome back to The Cultural Scavenger for part two of the inspiring story of Addison Francois. Tell me about how you went from, I'm a practicing attorney, to then teaching at Howard and then on to Georgetown. My journey to Georgetown has been a series of being fortunate enough to meet the right people and to be supported by the right people. So when I graduated from law school, I ended up clerking for a federal judge, which is supposed to be the sort of thing that is very prestigious. Everybody wants to do Mm -hmm. it. I think for me, it was a lot of luck that I ended up clerking for this particular judge. His name was A. Leon Higginbotham Jr. He was a judge on the Third Circuit, Federal Court, Circuit Court in Philadelphia. And, you know, his claim to fame was that he had, he had been at the time that he was appointed the youngest federal judge to get on the bench. He was a black judge. And for many, many years, when Thurgood Marshall was still on the bench, the rumor was that if Thurgood had retired while there was a Democrat in the presidency, Judge Higginbotham would have got to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Exactly. And the second thing that he had as his claim to fame was that he was one of the first person to begin the study of law and the intersection of slavery, law and slavery. It may seem obvious now, but back then... That was a foreign concept. Exactly. So I spent two years working in his chambers. Uh, In addition to that, he also happened to be teaching at the same time uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. And every once in a while, as clerks, would go to his classroom. So my law school experience wasn't a very good one. Uh, I didn't really have a close relationship with my professors. But watching the judge teach, I saw another way of doing it. Mm-hmm. So then that was the very first time I began to think about, maybe I want to be a teacher. But after the clerkship, I went to work for one of the gigantic corporate law firms in New York City, Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison. Then I went into civil rights work with the United States Commission on Civil Rights. But then I always remembered this idea that I wanted to teach. And I started my teaching career at NYU. Then when we left this New York, I went to Howard. And from Howard, I got to Georgetown. What was the most interesting case that you ever worked on as an attorney? I can actually tell you. I can actually tell you. I bet you can. <laughs> I can I actually, it's not the most meaningful case. The most meaningful case I ever worked on was I represented uh, folks who were uh, on death row in Texas. Um, The death row prison uh, in Texas was actually very close to College Station, Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, So close to the campus of Texas A&M. Texas A&M. Exactly. So, but that was that. That's the meaningful cases that I worked on, and after that, I've worked on a lot more meaningful cases, including my work with you, but the most interesting case I worked on is that I once was on a case opposing the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. (laughs) Well, let me just take a minute and go. (laughs) It's actually actually an interesting story. Um, The Empire State Building in New York City is one of the most profitable buildings in the entire city. Mm But the building, when it was first built, the person who built it didn't keep the ownership of the building. They basically sold the building, but they kept a lease back on the building. 
And the lease is supposed to last 100 years. And at the time, when they leased the building, they only paid the landlord, the new owner, I think something like a million dollars. Back then, that was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But the million dollars was supposed to be a fixed amount up until today. So today, it's an outrageous amount because it means if, you, if you're the landlord, the person who owns the building, you're making no money because the person who's making the money is your quote-unquote tenant who's leasing the entire building and subleasing it to other people and only giving you a million dollars, which is chump change. Yeah. When the Japanese in the, in, the late, in the early 90s were on a buying spree, they bought the Empire State Building. Yeah. I don't know if they did their homework in not realizing that the building wasn't worth anything to the person who owned it. The lease was worth something. Mm. So once that happened, they decided they wanted to break the lease. And the way they broke the lease is that they hired Donald Trump and they gave him a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of the ownership of the building. And they basically told him, go and see if you can break the lease. So huh. then he basically bought he, a lawsuit. And he did what he did, the, did what he does best. Exactly. He <laughs> bought a lawsuit against the owners. And the owners of the building was a company that was then, I don't know if your your listeners remember this, and if you remember this by a woman named Leona Helmsley. Oh, yeah. Well, I think well, most it, of my my listeners, I think, are old enough to probably remember well, Leona. Leona but, exactly. So they were moguls in New York at that point. Exactly. She had, Leona Helmsley had real money. Folks yeah. always think, that the former president has real money in real estate in New York. That is not true. He doesn't. Yeah. Leona Helmsley had she, the real She had the money. Yeah. Exactly. So then he basically put himself out as having, as really owning the building. And he bought a lawsuit against the building to break the lease because he said that the landlord, the tenants were basically wasting the building. It was a completely frivolous lawsuit. It was simply designed to basically try to see if you could intimidate the people who held the list. But the people who held the list essentially were powerful enough that they hired one of the top law firms in New York City, Paul Weiss. And the list was never going to get broken. But this is what, this was the first time that I saw evidence of how there was no argument that he wasn't willing to make. There was no statement that he wasn't willing to say. There was no lie that he wasn't willing to to say if, in fact, it got to what he wanted to do. You know, so we won the case, by the way. Uh, and the people who held the lease still hold the lease right now. That's but for, for a while, he went around claiming that he owned the Empire State Building. It's not true. The Japanese company had given him a tiny percentage of a tiny percentage to make him a quote-unquote nominal owner so he could bring the lawsuit. You, you had an insight on... This guy's flim flam fraudulent persona way back saw, before anybody else did. I saw it behind. I saw behind um, behind the curtain because back then his reputation in New York City was sort of very high. He was riding high, but then once I got involved in the case, and I was a junior associate. That's, I'm, I wasn't the one leading the case. I was a junior associate in the case, but I was going to these meetings, reading these documents, writing these briefs, uh, and and sort of going to court to watch the partners argue the case. It's like you saw there was nothing there. It was seeing, it was the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. It's like, you saw there's really nothing behind the curtain. I'm thinking every single thing the man is saying, he's making up. And of course, because he was a plaintiff in the case and there was discovery, 
some of his financial information had to be disclosed. And you're able to see, my God, he's simply making up how much money he has. <laughs> the emperor has no clothes, which yes, he's known for so, a while. As a young associate at the law firm, that was probably my one. <laughs> oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. Now, fast forward. You're at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Georgetown Law. What's it like directing young student attorneys? And what is the criteria to, to assign students to a project like mine? You know, they, they volunteer, yeah. right? To tell they me volunteer. And, and to, to, to answer your first question, I think it's like it's an absolute joy because what you get to do is that you get to work with absolutely brilliant people, people that I would never be able to compete against if I had to get to law school myself, I'd, with, I'd compete against them. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm not being forced. No, to I, I, I understand because, you know, the first time that we met with the student attorney teams, and I mean, we've been through, it's hard to believe it's four and a half years now since you and I have been collaborating, but I just remember talking to to some of these students and they're like, well, I went to undergrad at Harvard, and I went to undergrad at Yale. I'm going, son of a bitch. Yeah, These kids are... <laughs> so, God, imagine yeah. having to supervise them. <laughs> That's a bit feeling inferior. But it's actually fantastic to be able to get together with them. You're not lecturing. You're working on real cases. They're absolutely dedicated. They give you a 1,000%. And every day, you're leading these cases, you're working on these projects you find yourself learning new things just by by being around them. And in terms of what it's like for them to work on cases or why, there's only one criteria that I use whenever I ask them to volunteer. I said, look, the thing that I'm going to ask you to do is not like regular class. You're going to be working 10, 12, 13 hours a day. You're going to be working on weekends. Sometimes I won't be on the phone with you at 11 o'clock on a Saturday evening. Just because it's Thanksgiving doesn't necessarily mean that you will always be able to take it off. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to choose the cases that when you are sitting at home and it's two o'clock in the morning and you're writing something about the case, you don't notice the time. I want you to pick the cases that you feel passionate about. I want you to pick the cases that if something is going wrong with the, uh, against the client, it pisses you off, right? Um, so that's the standard. So for mm-hmm. example, I've never assigned any student to your project. Every single team you've ever met has been teams who've basically said, this is what I want to work on. And I've never had to basically look around and say to the clinic, oh, I don't have enough people to work on in this case. Can somebody help me out? No, it's always, your project has always got gathered volunteers because students react to your project the way I did when I first, when the other Andy, because Andy Mandrella is the one who brought your case to us. Yep. And they react the same way. There is a sort of visceral anger about the position that you're in there's this visual anger about feeling as if in some sense you're being bullied by people who don't care enough. And you want to say, I know, and the students always, I always tell them, look, you know, it's a hard project because the law is against us and yet they still want to do it, you know? Which makes me appreciate them that much more. I'm in awe of them 
but I can tell you, and you can pass this along, and I think I hopefully I've told the teams that the criteria that you just mentioned, you know, Allison, that's the work ethic that she put into it. She was mm-hmm. she did the same thing. I mean, it was the same kind of she wanted to do the right thing and she wanted to help people. The the students that you've got are an embodiment of what Allison would be doing if she were here. I mean, it's the same thing. And they know that, which is the reason why, like, whenever they get on the case, there is one thing I always said to them. I said, look, I'm never going to ask you to watch. Thank you. I'm glad you, yeah. Yeah, just they can't. Andy hasn't watched it. I don't want you to talk about it with them. So, and I don't think you need to watch it to work on the case. But the one thing I want you to do is that I want you to learn as much about her as you can. And remember, the first team or the first couple of team that work on the case got on the case before your book was published. Yeah. And at some point, while the team was on the case, your book was published. So right now... It used to be that before you published a book, I would say to them, I know you're going to come across a lot of videos, but don't watch it. I simply want you to go into the internet and simply try to reconstruct her life as much as you can. But now I always say to them, okay, now you work on the case. The first thing you need to do is to read in this book because I want you to understand. I want you to understand that we're not doing this because of some abstract principle of law. Yes, 230 is involved in this, but that is not why we're here. We're here because this person lived, she was loved, and she mattered. And we need to do everything we can to make sure that no matter how difficult it is, we remind everyone that was the case. So as you know, they basically, they work on the case because that's what they want to do. It's not because they're interested in 230. That's not why they're working on it, you know? It makes me feel so good, and it warms my heart to, to think that that's, mm-hmm. they have this objective in mind when they, when they sign up. And, um, you know, I would love to, at, at some point when all of this is over, I'd love to have a reunion with everybody that worked on this and have it, you know, be, let's all, you know. That would be fantastic. We, you know, we need to we we need to work toward that. I know. Imagine if the day ever comes where we finally get folks to pay attention and do the right thing in a meaningful and systematic way, so that not only you don't have to go through this, but others who are in your position don't as well. And we get together every single person who's ever worked on this case. When I first connected with the clinic, Andy Mandrella, you mentioned earlier, was the the lead. And, and he rotated off, and you assumed the lead. But now, does that happen to you? Do do you rotate off? I mean, how does that work? What happened is that I direct the clinic, um, so so I'm, I'm in charge of the entire clinic, and then I work with two fellows who are young attorneys, maybe about five or six years out of practice. And when they work with me, um, the fellows only work for two years at Georgetown, and then they transition out. And they do one or two things. They either transition out for, to other public interest work or they go into teaching themselves. Um, so essentially, there are times when I transition out of cases. Mm. So it was Andy's case 
and I was working with him on the case. When Andy left, the choice that I had is that I always have a choice to basically say, okay, now that this fellow left, I'm going to give this case to another fellow. I just never felt that it was appropriate for me to give your case to another fellow. I always thought that it was important for me to keep the case myself. And it's not because I don't think the other fellows can do a good job. They will. But there are a couple of reasons. Number one, even though you always have to tell your story to new students and you have to get used to new students, I never felt that I wanted to put you in a position where in terms of the lead person, you constantly had to start over again with this new person because I thought that was unfair. You know, there are certain things that I know in terms of how you relate to the case and how you relate to the videos that you don't have to explain to me. And I don't want, I didn't want you to have to explain that every single time. But the second reason is that this is one of these cases, Andy, that I have to see it through. I have to see it through. Personally, as I said before, Andy Manjola brought the case, but I always was involved in it. And I've always, I've always admired the fact that you refuse to sort of permit Allison's memory to be solid. And you've insisted on being the guardian of it, no matter how many obstacles you feel. And I just don't feel it's right for me to say, okay, I've walked next to you enough down that road. I'm going to leave you now. I just can't. So for me, I will leave this case when it's over or when you tell me you're done. I'm not going to leave this case before then. My God, I've never, I'm so glad that you shared that with me because I didn't know how it worked. And I'm so grateful that you have the attachment to, to me and to Allison and, uh, and this fight. And I I can't say enough about the friendship that we've developed over Mm -hmm. these last four and a half years. And I can't tell you how grateful I am to have you as a steadfast ally in this. And Patterson, it's an honor to know you. Same here, Andy. Same and, here. Thank you for giving me the chance to work on this case with you. And and we will we'll bring all the teams back together when we finally <laughs> beat these bastards and <laughs> raise the toast. Thanks so much for uh, for joining me on this. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. This, it's the nicest conversation I've had. Usually, I mean, whenever I mean, I'm invited to speak about something or to do an interview, it's always about something very specific or technical. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate the fact that what you and I just said was simply, we simply had a conversation. We're just having a conversation. And it's I, I think that I get to do that. That's right. It's been special more than you know. It's my pleasure, Andy. Take care. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Marianne Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening.